Hi, this is Matt Shaw, pastor at City Lift Church. If you're in the Fort Lauderdale area, we'd love for you to come visit us on a Sunday sometime or join us online, citylift.church. We hope today's message fills you with courage and helps you on your spiritual journey. We exist just to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. Enjoy today's message. So no further ado, would you put your hands together for Thomas Lawson and welcome him. And um, hang up here just for a second, man. I love this guy, man. He is just amazing. And he came here, and he's been a part of our church now for a while. Amazing heart, generous heart. Uh, in 2024, he's going to be overseeing all of our lift group leaders and lift groups. I'm really excited about that. He's, he's had a chance to do that ministry before. Don't get too funny with him because he does jujitsu, okay? So we got to keep him on the good side here. Uh, but I'm excited. This, this man really, like every time I've interacted with Thomas, and I'm like, man, like I, I like this guy more and more, and he has a heart for God. And so today we've invited him to come and to teach. And I like to bring in local people sometimes because they have the heart of the house. And so open up your head and your heart today because I think God really has a word for you through Thomas this morning. Okay? All right, let's go. Thank you, my man. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Matt. So many kind words. Man, that really impacts me. I hope to live up to that with you guys. Yeah, I haven't preached a ton, um, but I've, I've had the opportunity to share one time here so far. I really just want to start a conversation with you guys today, though. Uh, share a little bit of my story, a little bit of my heart um, for those that might not know me. Um, and then for those who uh, maybe I'll be working a little bit more closely with in the coming year with small groups and everything. Just for you guys to see some of my story and the way that God has really uh, impacted my life. So like Pastor Matt said, my name is Thomas. I've been calling City Lift my home for about a year now. I moved to South Florida last November. And before I moved, one thing that I was really praying about was that God would prepare a place for me um, and that he would prepare me for a place. Uh, so before I moved, I, I wanted a place where I could find good mentorship, I could find people to walk with, but also that he'd be preparing me for roles to walk into. And City Lift has just been an awesome answer to prayer. Uh, it's been one thing after the other from serving to Bible studies to people that I've gotten to meet. And this was the first place that I checked out. I, I moved to South Florida on a Tuesday. I came to City Lift on a Sunday. And somebody invited me to a Bible study that first week, and I was in a Bible study with Pastor Matt, Matt Rudder, McKinley, Artillas, people that became like regular friends in my life within one week. I mean, it was like so miraculous. So I'm super grateful for this community so far. And I was gone the last three weeks, so I really missed you guys. I was back home and everything, but it's really good to be back with you. So a little bit about my story, though. I grew up in Virginia. I did grow up in a Christian home, but uh, that choice didn't really become personal to me until I was in college. I was 17 when I went to college. I went to Virginia Tech, and um, I was a really good kid, very moral, like strict upbringing. I was like a goody two-shoes, honestly. But when I went to college, even though I didn't drink or party, I still was out trying to meet people. And some people invited me to social events, and I remember being out in this one neighborhood that you know had these really notorious big parties. And it was probably my third weekend of college, and I'm out there trying to meet people, and while I'm in the midst of this crowd of, of people meeting each other and, and having fun, the only thing that I could think of was just this grip on my soul that I was going to stand before God one day, and he would determine my future. It was just uh, this weight that I didn't know what eternity held for me. And I was like, why am I thinking these things? This is like the height of my life. You know, you're a freshman in college. The world is your oyster. There's so many opportunities and experiences and people to meet. And um, if you've seen like the Barbie movie, she has random thoughts of death. And she's like, where is this coming from? My life is perfect. <laughs> Might have missed half the room with that, but I know some people appreciate that reference. Um, but that was, that was my life. I was like, where is this coming from? 
And even in hindsight, I, I don't think it was anything within myself. There was nobody speaking a certain sermon to me, but I, I think somebody was praying some really effective prayers uh, at that point in my life. Um, and the Holy Spirit just came and gripped my soul with, uh, with that reality. So that semester, I didn't really know where to turn, but I got alone with God. And, and at the midst of when everybody else was you know, going to class and meeting people, I found myself uh, on my face in my dorm room and just like crying before God that I, I had to confess I didn't know who he was. Um, I might have known who he was for who my parents had said he was or who my friends had said he was or for who like a previous pastor had said, but I didn't know God for who God said he was. And that just, it, it, it was something that, that grabbed me and I couldn't get away from it. So that semester I set myself to, to find out who God says he is and I read the entire New Testament front to back and it absolutely changed my life. Not because I was convinced of like some new moral philosophy or just a framework of living, but I saw a person there and I fell in love. Um, so it changed my life from the inside out. I wasn't just like a bad person becoming a good person. I was honestly a dead person coming to life. It, uh, it turned the orientation of my life inside out. So I wasn't just living for myself anymore. I, my, my self-consciousness about my life and what I was doing got swallowed up in God consciousness and I um, was just super grateful for that. And in the midst of that, I was like, dude, I want to find other people like this. Like, who else is experiencing this? And I started praying for community, uh, very similar to the way that I was, I was praying for church before I moved to South Florida. And um, once again, God was super, super faithful. Somebody from my high school had reached out, and I checked out a campus ministry my second semester. And it was like from day one, I felt at home there. And that became my life for all of college. I quit all my other activities. I had gone to school to play music and study for them. And I quit everything and just did leadership with my campus ministry. It's called Chi Alpha, but yeah, we have one in the room. Absolutely best time of my life. For four years, I, I served on leadership with them. Um, and I think what was so impactful is that that community really embodied the Acts 242 ideals. When you see the first church, there's a few things that scripture describes about them. And they devoted themselves to four things. It was to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And because of that, God really moved in their midst. The first church, like things, growth was exploding, people's lives were changing. And honestly, that, that really happened in my campus ministry as well. We were meeting with people like four to five times a week, amazing mentorship. Um, I led Bible studies for them for four years, as well as morning prayer. We had college students meeting five days a week from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. to intercede for the nations, pray for our campus, and just to praise the Lord. And I think it really set the tone of our campus ministry. So I ended up serving with them after college. I uh, worked with some missionaries in southern Spain. And again, I'm just super grateful for that experience. But throughout all of that, while I was leading, there were so many opportunities to serve and to reach people and to produce. Um, but I think that there was something that God kept calling me back to and us back to as a ministry, and it was to himself. When we think of the term minister or ministry, I think it's really easy to think of somebody who organizes events, who maybe uh, hosts gatherings, who administers elements or counsels people. Um, those are all really necessary roles, but I think I see something a little bit more central to that heart, uh, to the role of a priest in scripture. I don't have all of the scriptures up here, but you can write these down and definitely follow up after the service. You know, get into the Bible and do your own research. Fact check me. Um, <laughs> So I see this narrative in scripture. I'm just going to give you a few different examples. When I say God was calling us back to himself, we weren't just ministering to other people, we were ministering to him. 
So I want to talk today about what that means, what it means to minister to God, some biblical precedents for that, and some application for our own lives. So all the way back in some of the first Bible stories, we have the people that were stuck in uh, captivity in Egypt. And Moses is making this demand to Pharaoh, let my people go. And we hear that all the time. We're very familiar with that. But there was a second part of that phrase, uh, that they may serve me in the wilderness. So God had this express purpose for bringing his people out of slavery and out of bondage. And it was that they would be with him. And he does all these signs, brings people out, and it's all to get to this one point at Mount Sinai. It's basically like a a wedding feast, this destination wedding. It's a great idea. And unfortunately, at the wedding feast, the people basically commit adultery. Moses comes down off the mountain. He's got the stone tablets in his hand, like new covenant. You know, we're going to be together. And they've made a new golden calf, and they're worshiping somebody else. And it's like the most cringe thing that you could think of. Um, So he breaks the tablets, and he's distraught. But some people respond appropriately. The Levites, they rise up in reaction to the Lord. And because of that, in Deuteronomy 10.8, this is describing then the the worship order that, that Moses ends up creating. It says, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to what? To minister and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. So the Lord specifically brings the people out of Egypt for this express purpose, that, he would, that they would minister to him, that they would bless his name. He wants this dynamic. He doesn't just want animal sacrifice. That's, that's part of the package in the Old Testament. But every single time throughout history in Israel then that you see revival come to the nation or reform come, it's whenever they grab the law once again and they're convicted of this and they say, you know, we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant, which is the express manifest presence of God in the Old Testament. We're going to put that back in the the center of our community once again. And so it happens multiple times. One of my favorites is when David gets a hold of this. David was somebody after God's own heart. And as a leader, he ends up folding the people of Israel into his own prayer and song. He had made a vow to the Lord. You can read that vow in uh, Psalm 132. He makes a vow that he will not rest until he finds a dwelling place for the Lord on the earth. And something that really moved God's heart. And he welcomes the people into that by initiating this massive worship movement, probably one of the most powerful ones that we've seen on the earth. Uh, It's where we get a lot of our psalms. So much scripture was actually written in that tent. And one of the things that he does is he sets up worshipers uh, to to continuously worship before God. But then it also says in 1 Chronicles 16.4 that he appointed some of the Levites to do what? To minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank, and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. This comes full circle when we see Jesus then, now in the New Testament. He says something in John 4, 23. He's talking to a woman at the well, and he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. So I see this this through line in Scripture where God has been seeking ministers to actually bless his name, to speak to his heart, to sing to him. He wants this type of intimacy. And what was once reserved for few... In the Old Testament, it was just the Levites has now been opened to many. The New Testament actually calls us a kingdom of priests. This is what Jesus did. He came and he qualified us all as priests. Not just that we would minister to to one another, but that we would actually minister to him. And that really makes my heart come alive. So when Jesus was saying he was looking for worshipers like this, he doesn't give many details in that exact passage. But I think there's some other passages where we find those kind of worshipers that he was looking for. So a scripture that I've come back to time and time again that has really impacted me is Luke 7, 
36 through 50. So I'm going to read this with you guys, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. This is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? And Simon answered him, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? I think one thing to note is that I don't think Simon is one of the Pharisees who is setting a trap for Jesus. There were a lot of Pharisees that had bad intentions. They wanted to catch him in some um, philosophical snare, or they wanted to set him up uh, and actually murder him in some way. Simon, for all that we know, had really great intentions. He's a prominent figure in society, has a great life, is probably well-respected by people, and he sets up a dinner. He wants to host Jesus and he invites people. So he has good company, good food, and a good plan to welcome Jesus into his house. And Jesus, being Jesus, shows up where he's invited, which is really awesome. But in the midst of this dinner party, there's an unexpected guest. I don't know how she got in, but it's clear in Scripture that she doesn't fit the rest of the group. And there's maybe a palpable tension in the air. There's at least looks of judgment something that Jesus is picking up on. And what's really interesting about this story is that we essentially have an open table review from Jesus. We have like a Yelp review of the dinner, which I don't know about you guys, but I'd be kind of mortified to know that Jesus' Yelp review of my house was posted forever in scripture. But there's something that he notes in his, his review of the dinner. There were great people, great conversation, a great plan, but he notes at one point, he turns to the woman and says to Simon, I have one, one thing to say to you. When I entered the house, you gave me no blank. You gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no oil. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, I was ready to receive these things, and you withheld them from me. Even though Simon had this great plan, he was so focused on the presentation, and honestly, it probably was a great dinner. But there was something different that Jesus was looking for, and it's something that the woman gave him. I think these things that she gives him are actually really symbolic, and they're keys that we can have for, for ministering to Jesus himself. This is something that moved his heart. I think her tears represent all of her pain, all of her confession, um, it's everything that she was and everything that she did. Her entire past, she pours out on him 
as she washes his feet. I think her kisses represent all of her affection, all of her praise, her thanks, the hope that she has for the future. She's, again, pouring it out on his feet. And then this ointment is her gifts, her strengths, her talents. That's everything that she's ever worked for and everything that she's able to do. Again, just lavishly poured out on Jesus. And interestingly, she's not trying to divert his attention. We don't have any recorded words from her. She's not trying to interrupt the dinner party. She just finds out that he's there. Without saying anything, she comes to just render worship. And so this Pharisee is seeking Jesus, and he does host a great event. But I think the the woman ministers to him in a really special way. And these things that she pours out on him, I don't think they're manufactured. Just because we know what moves him doesn't mean we can just manufacture those things. I think she pours out these things because she sees rightly. She sees herself rightly, but more importantly, she sees Jesus rightly. And when we see his goodness, when we see his grace, when we see his, his beauty, his mercy towards us, it elicits a certain response. This is the same response that I actually see in Revelation 5, when the apostle John has his open vision into heaven. The picture of Jesus in Revelation 5 is that he's finally revealed like he has accomplished all of his work, and it says that there appears one who has a lamb as though slain. And what happens is the four living creatures sing a new song, and the 24 elders around the throne, um, if you don't know this context, read Revelation 5. It's my favorite picture in all of scripture. But the 24 elders that are surrounding the throne of God, when Jesus is in the midst, revealed as he actually is, they bow down and they throw their crowns before him. It's the same picture as the woman. And it says that they sing a new song, and that song is Worthy is the Lamb. I was so excited that we sang that song today. This is the song of heaven, Worthy. The 24 elders have the same response as the woman. As soon as they see Jesus for who he is, they bow down and they just give. They just give and say, worthy are you. And when we pray, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we're saying. We're saying, let the song of heaven be the song here on earth. Let it be the song of our community or the song of my personal prayer life. Worthy are you. We have tears, we have kisses, we have oil that we can pour out, but it's all for the express purpose of showing Worthy are you, Jesus. And that's what he loves. He's not just concerned with the presentation. Um, You know, we can set up great dinner parties. We can set up great Bible studies and great events. And we can be so excited to show Jesus what we have. Uh, We can organize our life in a way and think, oh, man, he's going to be so pleased with this. But what he wants is our heart. He's after that intimate ministry where we pour out our pain, our affection, and our resources for him. So at one point, the last thing that I'll say is when Jesus turns to them, he says, do you see this woman? The reason he asked that is, I think, because they were not seeing her the way that he did. The woman's sight was correct. She saw herself right. She saw Jesus right. But there was something in the Pharisees that needed editing. And although he doesn't use the word repent in this passage, I think that's exactly what he's asking them to do. I had the privilege of taking New Testament Greek as one of my electives in college, and I took it with some of my roommates, and one of our favorite word uh, that we became obsessed with that semester was metanoia, which is the Greek word for repent. In our culture, we hear repent, and sometimes it's a very, like, forceful word. You know, it's honestly not our favorite word. It sounds very religious, and a lot of times I think we just hear change. You're wrong. You need to do better. It's this kind of ugly word. You're like, oh, really? Can't we just talk? Um, But I think here, Jesus is giving us a great picture of what that actually looks like. When you look at the word metanoia in Greek, a much closer translation rather than change is 
reconsider. A way to think about that is, hey, look again. When, when Jesus is asking us to repent in Scripture, he's saying, you might think that you've seen yourself. You might think you've seen God. You might think you've seen Scripture, but I want you to look again. I want you to reconsider because there's something better there. And so he asked these people, he's like, I want you to look again at this woman. I need you to repent of this way of thinking that you have about her because her worship had offended them. And he's like, I want you to reconsider what's going on here. This is something that goes all the way back to like the first story we have in scripture. Cain and Abel, they had division over worship. One was offended that God accepted one's worship and not the other. This is like central to man's theme is that we have divisions in worship. But God is really patient with us and that through Deuteronomy with the Levitical priesthood and David and then Jesus, he's giving us instructions and being super patient with us on teaching us how to minister. Not just that we would please him, but that we would learn to receive as much of him as possible. And so in this moment, there's this question hanging in the air as these guys are reconsidering. And the question hanging in the air is, if this man were a prophet and he knew what sort of woman this is, this is the tension hanging in the air. I don't know about you guys, but this tension hangs in the air for me sometimes too. It might be hanging in the air for you when you try to check out a church or when you go to pray. Sometimes there's this swirl of shame. There's this voice that can come and say, you know, if he knew who you were, if he knew what sort of person you were, he wouldn't accept this. Because her worship, it's not proper. It's not in line with the Old Testament. In fact, compared to the dinner party, this is improper. This is unplanned. It's indecent. I mean, honestly, somebody should clean this up. We have a great plan for Jesus. She's distracting him. But in this moment, this, this question, if he knew, gets swallowed up by a bigger question. When they reconsider, and when Jesus starts to reveal himself for who he is, this question of if he knew, then he wouldn't accept this kind of worship, get swallowed up in who is this that even forgives sin? Their consciousness of her position in society or of her sin or of her shame gets swallowed up in, wait a second, this guy is something else. He's overshadowing this. And I think that's something that can happen in our community and in our prayer lives. When we honor Jesus in this way and when, when he becomes central in our community this way, whether it's personal sin or bad experiences that we've had in the past or preconceived notions, they all get swallowed up when we see a picture of who Jesus really is. And we're like, who is this man that even forgives sin? That's the way that he's impacted my life. And so I share this scripture because it's given me such great handles on how to approach and interact with God, not just serving in his house, but actually serving him blessing his name, singing to him day and night that he's worthy. It gives me handles that he actually wants the messy. He wants my tears. He wants my kisses. He wants my oil. That might not seem like much. I don't know who the modern day Pharisees would be in this passage, but I know it's not me. I don't have this super nice, neat life, and I don't have the perfect dinner party planned for him. My life is a mess sometimes, but what I do have is what actually he's seeking those tears, kisses, and oil. So that's my heart for City Lift as we move into a new season, whether it's our Bible studies or our large group meetings or just your personal prayer time, that it would be revolutionized by this opportunity to actually minister to his heart. And that's something that I want to see us honestly grow in, not just as a community, but as individuals. And the best way I think to do that is to reconsider 
like what happened with me in my first semester. If we get alone with Jesus and we seek his face in his scripture with his people, he's so faithful to show up. And I forever want to be a student of what it means to receive him well and host him well. It's a scriptural reality that God has preferences and he wants to be received in a certain way. So I hope this scripture sticks with you and it ministers to you in the same way that it's changed my life. I'm going to pray for us really quick, but thank you guys so much for the opportunity to be here and to be part of City Lift. I'm so excited to be a part of this community. So Jesus, thank you so much for today, our opportunity to worship in safety. Thank you for the way that you are faithful to show up. When we ask you to, you show up. And God, we are so attentive to you. We want to be students of what it means to receive you rightly. We want to be attentive to your heart and move you. Thank you for speaking your word to our hearts and moving us and giving us the opportunity to speak your word back to you. And that's something that moves your heart. It's a beautiful dance that you've involved us in. Would you bless us as we go out from here, and would you continue to be an integral part of this community? Would you send the Holy Spirit to unite our hearts in love through Bible study and through these large group meetings, through the prayer of our community, that you would be put on display here, and that the personality and person of Jesus would be central to our church, and that that is what will change lives and change Fort Lauderdale, and we say we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for checking out our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share with a few friends. Thanks for helping us make Jesus famous right here in South Florida. Again, if you're in the Fort Lauderdale area, we'd love to see you sometime. Or as always, visit us online, citylift.church. Have an amazing day.